Hi, you are listening to The Workplace Theater. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Gloria Mamba. Gloria is Regional Head of Property for Africa and Middle East at Standard Chartered Bank. So hi, everyone. Um, today I'm with Gloria Mamba. She works for Standard Chartered Bank and is, to my knowledge, located in Dubai because that's where we met actually many years ago. And I remember that at the seminar, I think it was Siri Finance, maybe that we did together and another one that I'm not sure 100% what it was, but it was raining in Dubai, cats and dogs, actually. It was a crazy day. And later it was super hot again. So that was really something to see. But um, that's how we know each other. And that's why I asked her to join me today. Hi, Gloria. Hi, Sabine. How are you? I'm quite well. It's raining cats and dogs again today in Zurich. So oh, I, I think we need to trade. Now, but uh, I want to know from you, in the meantime, what are you doing at Standard Chartered Bank? And maybe you can give a little bit of a background story of how did you come to where you are? What's your professional background? Great. Thanks, Sabine. Um, I am currently the regional head of property for Africa Middle East. Uh, I, I think commonly known as corporate real estate services in many other organizations. I've been in my current role in Dubai for three years now. And before that, I came from a cluster role still within the bank based out of Kenya, managing East Africa. From a background perspective, I am an architect, interior designer and project manager. And that's what brought me into the built environment. And that's been my career for over 20 years now. Are you originally from Dubai? I don't even know that. No, no, no. I'm actually Kenyan in terms of where home is. We met in Dubai. I'd actually just traveled in for the CRE finance course, which was just was part of the MCR at Cornet Global. I think we also met in London for one of the courses, <laughs> yes, as well. So yeah, I'd traveled then, but now I'm based in Dubai. Now, um, we've heard Standard Charters in Kenya, uh, Dubai, London. How big is the real estate portfolio, actually? So we are across 60 countries uh, in terms of our business footprint. Generally, an emerging markets bank. We're headquartered in London, covering about almost 13 million square feet of real estate combination offices and branches. Okay, so it does include the branches, yes. the, the what you service. But not like like IT facilities. Is that within your reach as well? So we have shared services, obviously, that sit out of Bangalore and Malaysia that do support the bank, our GBS facilities. But other than that, everything else is primarily office-based and retail branch network. Yeah. So 60 countries, a lot of square uh, feet. How is the corporate real estate team set up? So we're set up primarily to with a focus to our internal clients. So we have a retained team within Standard Chartered, and then we have uh, outsourced partners, supply partners who deliver our operational aspects for us across the globe. CBRE in, uh, in Asia PAC and Mason Sebel for Europe, Americas and Africa, Middle East. So do you have um, country heads that report into Correct. you? Correct. 
Well, that means you're all rounders. So you do have the service providers to help you with the operational stuff, but otherwise you're doing the whole span of what corporate real estate can entail. Correct. And if I were to break that down, it would be, you know, we've got the asset and transaction management portion of the business, the property business. We've got the facilities management more workplace now because it covers our colleagues that we're supporting in a workplace setup. And then we've also got security, health and safety and well-being. And a part of that is also the operational risk arm that supports us just to keep us in check from a process and governance perspective. As you're doing full span, one question that pops to my head is, what are the most difficult projects and decisions to make? And what are the ones that are more like regular business you don't have to think that much about? (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question. When I think about it, it's, uh, you know, everything in corporate real estate could be regular BAU or complex in terms of, you know, the decisions that you make. I would say, say, for example, from a complexity perspective, it's strategy around workplace and how we support our colleagues, being able to drive real estate strategies in different, different markets in a consistent way, given that we're in 60 countries. You know, affordability is a complexity that we always tackle, tend to find that we have to tackle in very, very many ways to be able to make sure that we deliver the service in the same shape and form, regardless where you are in our portfolio. So I I think it varies in terms of, you know, what is complex on any day. I tend to wake up in the morning and decide, okay, so what's on my plate and what decisions do I need to make? But I think key is understanding, you know, a key focus on in terms of strategy and you know what you're driving to. And then, you know, the other decisions and the engagements that help us carry things along are the things that cause us to now maneuver, change, uh, be agile about how we make the decisions, be agile about how we deliver the strategy as well. Because a lot of the things that we do in real estate sometimes are learning and learnings for a lot of us even when it comes to internal business. And then, you know, when you think about the risk-related aspect of delivering within financial services, as would be in any other, we have to consider what impact we have from a regulatory environment. So we do need to keep our different stakeholders informed and stand guided in a lot of areas where we would be touching, you know, regulatory issues. I do want to tap into the workplace programming a little bit more, but before we do that, Just out of curiosity, the strategy that you're working towards, does it differ between the office locations and the retail branches or has it the same set of framework around it? So a lot of the strategy from a retail perspective would be driven with a very high client focus. It's really dependent on the overall business strategy for the retail business that drives what we do in in the real estate for retail. The office one is pretty consistent in terms of what it is that we're driving, but also one of the things we don't ignore is that we're in 60 countries and there are local nuances that we do need to adapt, regardless of whether we're looking at an office strategy or a retail strategy in terms of what we drive. Yeah, so that means there is a most common workplace configuration within the organization that you're building. Correct. That would be... No, I think, you know, in general, you know, one of the the strategies that we're looking at is being able to focus on the experience in terms of an elevated experience for our colleagues. I think that has become even more imperative now, given that we have experienced working from home, 
and therefore we are now competing with the home experience when it comes to the workplace in the office. So that has taken front and center, obviously taking care of our colleagues, ensuring that they're working in a safe environment that allows them to be productive. And that's across the board, whether you're in an office setting or in a retail type setting, to be able to deliver the experience for all our colleagues across the board. So when I say experience, and I think that's really underpins what it is that we do on a day-to-day basis to make sure that they have a seamless environment that allows them to be productive every day they come in, wherever they are. So you do have then already a directive as to how much home office and remote work will be allowed? What we've done, and obviously we've taken lessons learned, and you would have seen in the press in terms of what what it is that we're trying to do for our colleagues around you know, just creating an environment to allow them to be flexible. And and therefore, one of the things that we have done as an organization is offer up in a phased format, a hybrid nature in terms of employee preference. We're still working through that right now to be able to understand, you know, what the percentages will look like. But generally, we are saying that we're a flexible organization and, you know, you'll have the option to be able to work from home a few days a week. If you want to be a complete home worker, then there's that option as well. And if you want to be a complete office worker, you have that option as well. And I think that's generally the flexibility that we're trying to be able to roll out through the organization, but in a phased approach. So you have, coming from your role, you do have insight into a couple of different geographies. Do you see already differences in the adoption of that and in the working culture at certain offices? Not very varied, to be honest. I think because of the types of roles that we have and it's dependent on complexity, you do see mm-hmm. you know, similar trends regardless of where you are in the globe. I think what surprised us during COVID was the uptake of the flexibility in some of our markets, say in Africa, where we thought, you know, infrastructure would be a challenge and, you know, and we found that it's working and our colleagues there are happy with the flexibility. And therefore we do see that as continuing across the organizations, but it's role-based, it's complexity-based and it's regulatory-based in terms of what decisions we need to make. And again, you know, we are local in a nature. So we do need to understand that we're taking a lot of people along that journey of change, including our external stakeholders as well. True. Yeah. There's always more people at the table than you think there are. That needs to to, um, adapt, I guess, service offering as well. Of course. I mean, if you add, if you change the office set up, the services around it need to be adapted as well. It's a full package. Now, talking about workplace change, a lot of companies are envisioning now having less desk space because they anticipate people doing focus work at home and creating more collaborative areas, experience areas, and these kind of things in the office. Do you think that will happen for the banks well? And if that's so, how are you looking now at space demand? So... Interesting. That question is really interesting because I did. I joined a Leesman session, and we as we do use Leesman in terms of you know trying to understand mm-hmm. workplace experience. And I joined a session yesterday where the conversation was around comparatives from workplace. What is that that will you know what will need to be in place? And like I mentioned, you know earlier that now we are competing with the home, right? In terms of the experience that people have at home. 
And therefore, when it comes to the design of the office in terms of what it is that it will look like, it is going to be dependent on how much you want to compete with the home setting, right? To be able to bring people back in, the different things that we're looking at in terms of being able to understand what will be done in the office. And, you know, some of the things we've talked about, and I guess, you know, even the different panel discussions and colleagues that we are engaging with across the globe, you know, connecting learning from each other. Those are the things that will bring people back into the office. And so in terms of, you know, office design, what does a workplace look like now that we've got home working is just trying to understand what are those things that will bring people to a physical space in the office and what will they be doing there? And I think we are continually learning like everybody else. What are those activities that people need to do in the office? And, you know, what do we need to support in an office setting as we compete with home settings. So the Leesman data is actually quite interesting in terms of, you know, comparing what you get in terms of tasks, focus time, video conferencing, soundproofing. Some of the areas that were a bit of an issue prior to COVID are things, activities that are being supported now from a Leesman perspective. So when you look at, you know, pivoting this around to the office, then you're looking at making sure you have a sort of matchup in terms of what the office looks like. So it's got the ability to support some focus time, ability to support the sound, you know, ability to have private conversations. But I think more than anything, it's the ability to collaborate in a post-COVID time and connect with colleagues, right? So what does the space look like there in terms of being able to provide that kind of support? And I think that's where we are leaning to in terms of what we do from a design perspective, but we're all learning. So we're all engaging on the same issues and trying to connect and learn from each other, whether you're in financial services or whether you're in manufacturing, it's the same conversation. I think COVID has been quite a leveler in terms of trying to understand how do we support the human being in the workspace? And, And I think that becomes a priority, right? Because we're not serving machines, we're serving people. And so we need to understand what our colleagues want in the space and try and balance that out with what we can actually provide in those spaces and what, you know, and choose how do we then make sure that our colleagues are supported in the workspace. Yeah, it's really interesting because we're all at the same starting line, but the finish will look different for a lot of organizations. And then the employees, as our runners, they can make the choice where they want to run, right? You you bring up a really interesting point because one of the things that I've always, I'm now curious about is talent attraction and talent retention, right? And what role does the workplace have when it comes to making sure that we're attracting the right talent and then also retaining the talent that we have in the organization when all this settles down, right? When we've all gathered uh, herd immunity and now things are going back into, you know, some sort of normalcy and as economies are continuing to recover, what does that look like from an employee perspective? And so I guess a lot of the conversation at Cornet during the CRE week is do we sit and wait or do we keep engaging or do we change the environments that we're in? And I think there's a balance right now in terms of a conversation. Hey, you can't ignore the people that we are supporting 
through the workplace, right? And we've got to now listen to them in terms of the solutions that we're providing within the right balances to be able to ensure that we are retaining the talent that's already in place right now. But also, as competition will spike, that we are able to attract the top talent regardless. So we're all going to be in the same fight in a few months again for talent. Yeah, and then the thing is, again, humans are not machines, as you said that, and humans are not always driven by reason, but by preference and personal circumstances. So what they tell you now might change within a couple of months. Correct. I have to to say, for me as well, when I was allowed to go to the office, which was like in fall, winter, I did go, I did enjoy it. Now that I'm used to home office again, I've been two months, I sometimes find it too much when I go in and have to talk to people. It's like you adapt so quickly and then it's always a struggle to go back to the other way. And I actually have to push me sometimes, especially when it rains cats and dogs. I'm like, well, maybe I'll stay in home office. I have calls all day anyways. Well, actually, something I like to ask as well, you personally, um, because I know you, for our prep call, you were in the office. You can make the choice. Which occasions do you go to the office and when don't you? And what drives you or attracts you in the office space currently? Currently, I think, you know, being a leader and the leader of a team, one of the things that I really value and get energy from is connecting with people and being able to just mention that, you know, to let them know that they're supported And a lot of our frontline teams have not stopped, right? They've continued to be in the office, continued to carry on their duties around sanitization. The security teams have to secure the buildings. Our relations hosts have to be at the reception to meet anybody who's coming into the building. And I think one of the things that actually drives me to the office is being able to just let them know that, hi, I'm here. I've not left you alone. Are you guys doing okay? And I think it's more the human part of it in terms of connecting with people that drives me to the office. I think the other thing, you know, for me, yes, I do have the preference, but I've chosen to try and connect at least with the office twice a week. It's not too hard a drive. And obviously, you know, I'm very well supported from an infrastructure perspective being in the UAE, but allowing myself to be in the office and maybe by chance have a water cooler conversation with another colleague who comes into the office. Sometimes I'm lucky, sometimes I'm not. But I think sometimes I just need that change of environment. And with the freedom of, you know, having to choose, I do get that change of environment that sort of refreshes my thinking. And it's not only practices by going to the office. I also do that at home. So sometimes I'll also just take my laptop and move to a place outside rather than on my desk just so that I can refresh and change the position. I think the the things we had in the office, like walking into a meeting room, going to the canteen, allowed us to debrief right through the day, allowed us to change, you know, certain settings for ourselves that allowed us to think differently. And I think that's the other thing that helps me, you know, sort of refresh my thinking and just practices that knowing that that change helps me think differently about a situation. So I'm being very intentional at home about what that means rather than sitting at my desk, you know, for eight to 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours, right? I've read that actually about the commute as well, that there is an optimal time range for a commute because it allows you to have a clear cut between working life and private life and debrief and calm down. And 
actually found that for myself as well, that if I close the laptop in the evening, I have a couple of routines of what I do for half an hour so that then I know, okay, now work's over and now, yeah, home life Which is interesting, yeah, because when somebody asked me, why did you choose to live so far from the office? I said, it's because it allows me the transition, right? It's between 25 and 30 minutes in terms of a commute. But that's enough for me to switch gears into, you know, the next portion and, and that kind of thing. And you're really right in terms of, you know, setting that routine so you can actually disconnect and formally disconnect or put a boundary in between work and your personal well-being, I call it, uh, in terms of being able to yeah. switch gears. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, speaking about that water cooler effect, bumping into people, supporting a safe return to work, is there um, certain tools and processes that you've implemented around that or are looking into implementing in the future? I think, you know, there's there's a lot going on, you know, in terms of tech advancement during, you know, creating ways and means for people to collaborate and connect with each other. Zoom blew up when everybody started picking it up. And it's because, you know, it's now affordable. It's now available for people to connect in video rather than on a phone call. I think being intentional about being present when we have those connections with people, whether it's a one-to-one call or a group call that allows you to be 100% in the room rather than multitasking, allows me to have those what would have been water cooler moments. So when people ask me a question, say we have an online chat service in the office, I normally say, okay, can I call you in a few minutes, right? Being a bit more intentional around that water cooler conversation or bump into somebody and solve an issue or a discussion that you were having that did not end is now that intentionality that I have to do to get onto a video call and have a video chat rather than continue chatting in an informal setup that doesn't allow that connectivity. And I think that for me has helped me solve a lot more conversations easier. It's taken adapting to it because I was not a video person, but it's now helping. And if somebody says, can you talk? I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, You know, connect on, on video or they don't expect me to call them on video to be able to get the conversation going. But I think that's the solution for not having the bump in water cooler discussions. I think the other thing as a leader for me is just being very intentional on having an informal discussion or a group sort of call that is not talking about work or anything. Just to, you know, have fun, have 30 minutes to an hour of not really work-centered, work-related stuff. And so that, those are the things that I've now pulled in as tools because then it helps build that relationship, right? Outside task that we have to deliver and things like that. And I think in a way it's building the camaraderie in a virtual setup that we have now and we can't help but use now to be able to continue those things that were not happening, that were happening in the office that you can't do on a regular basis being at home. It's brought a lot of awareness on it for ourselves. I have a colleague as well who's like, you know what, I actually don't like it when people just ping me during the day and give me a call and interrupt me in my work. So I'm establishing now the rule, if people want something from me during the day, they should pitch in a chat message what they want. And then I decide if I take it up or if I schedule something with them. So he's taking out the disruptions. And it's the same like, 
um, being aware of the conversations you have and that also in the office, it's not always work. Right. You talk private things because that's how you build the trust right. and that's how you can walk through stuff with each other. True. And I think you've just got to be intentional as a leader in terms of, you know, and I guess it's the EQ portion of just knowing what's missing and being a bit more intentional around, you know, having the right level of conversations with colleagues and, you know, setting up or helping them set up the right boundaries. So whether it's modeling, as you said, your colleague who says, don't just ping and call, there's now, there's a lot more conversation around, are you free? Yeah. Before people actually um, reach out or tell you what it is. And I do appreciate that in terms of, you know, being sensitive to other people and what they're managing at any one time. And it could be me, it could be the other person, right? Because I'm a leader, right? I could bully myself into somebody's diary as well. But rather than do that is being a lot more intentional around respecting people's time and what they're managing at any one time. You mentioned that you that you have been um, doing the Leesman Index, and I remember that I saw Standard Charter Bank on the rankings that are published. Did you engage in the home version of it as well? We did. We did the home version as well, you know, just trying to gauge how our colleagues were feeling. And we did get a good result, to be honest, in terms of, you know, trying to understand. There's a high preference in terms of experience, in terms of what people are able to do. So the HLMI was higher than what our LMI plus buildings were. But I guess, you know, that was early and obviously there's no need to sort of try and balance that out, but it does give insights. And I think with any other survey, you're getting insights, right? In terms of the data that's coming out is giving you a story and a narrative. And I think what we want to be able to do is understand what that narrative is to be able to help us solve for our colleagues' experience regardless of where they are. So it was interesting, the session yesterday with Liesman was saying, how do you bring the balance, right? So the home is not in competition with the office, so you can actually provide a seamless experience with someone who's working from home and somebody working in the office. And their theme was go big or almost die, right, in terms of the office. So we've got to now start thinking about this colleague and what their needs are to be able to make sure that it's a seamless experience, right? So today, as I mentioned to you earlier that I was struggling with internet connectivity. So that's one of the things that, you know, when the network flip-flops on one day, it can mess up the whole experience, right? So how do I make that a seamless experience as well in the office to be able to drive the right outcomes? Yeah, you don't want to be driven by technology, right? Technology supports live results, not the other way around. Correct. Yeah. Besides Leesman, are there other tools or measures you're putting in place to um, look at the success of new workplace models? I think Leesman is our primary. You know, obviously we've got other feedback mechanisms with staff through, you know, understanding how they took up the workspace and how how it's serving them. But as an organization, we obviously have, you know, an employee survey that allows us to understand, you know, all angles of work. So those two overlays help us to sort of hit the right spot in terms of trying to deliver. Sometimes we get it. And obviously, you know, as we're continuing to learn, as you mentioned, our preferences continue to change. When roles change, maybe our preferences change there as well. So we've just got to keep iterating and learning through the process. 
but data, 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 being able to tell the story from data and facts and what we're getting out in terms of responses, that helps us to deliver the experiences and the workplaces that people like and enjoy being in that support them to be productive. So do you have metrics in that area in your performance management as well? So it's not only financials. Yeah, from an experience perspective, because our our role is to improve the experience for our colleagues on a regular basis. So we do measure that and gives us the ability to be able to improve, right? Because the process is not just measuring. It's always around continued improvement. And therefore, that's what we're looking at. So we do measure it, yes, as part of the performance. Yeah, that's what I like to say as well. Measuring is only step one. Then you have to build, and you've mentioned that, then you have to build the narrative and then you have to actually act upon it right. and not just let it sit there and be like, okay, we have that inside now. Good. That's no, it. I mean, how many surveys have you responded to? Nobody has, you think they go into this black hole and you never get to know what happens with the responses that you get. And I think that's what the tendency would be if you continue to ask people questions Uh, you get the data and you don't act on it, right? The next time you come to ask, there'll be, I call it survey fatigue, and as many people do too, that you probably won't get the responses that you really wanted to or the number of responses to be able to balance out the, you know, previous information. So I think if we fail to act, we fail completely. Yeah, very drastic, but true. Now, you said it centers pretty much what you're doing, centers pretty much around employee experience. Has that always been that way or is that something that the past year has driven? Our experience journey started probably three or four years ago. And, you know, in a way, we've all, we consider ourselves a leader in that space in terms of being able to drive a better experience for our colleagues. And it's really been based on activity-based working. When we started our journey around activity-based working, the, it actually centers around what people are doing in the office and how do we support them to work best. And, you know, when we started talking about productivity of the workplace, it was really centered about around employees and what it is they do every day, not who they are. And when you start thinking about what employees do in a space, you're now thinking about experience. And that's how a journey of evolution has been. So it's not driven by the pandemic. I think it's elevated by the pandemic in terms of being able to quickly solve it. It's been accelerated but it's not a new journey for us in terms of being able to drive, you know, a better workplace for our colleagues. And then when it comes to making decisions on what should be provided in the workplace, what you're building, who are the people that you need to involve? One of the things, obviously, we were learning through this process is trying to get an understanding of, you know, obviously everybody's asking what's the future of workplace today, right? And we wanted to hear from our colleagues in terms of what they think the future of the office is. So we had business leaders at the table. We had colleagues from different levels of the organization speaking to us to be able to get a balanced approach in terms of what we provide. Overlaid with that, we have the Leesman data that we're using. We have, you know, the different surveys in terms of expectation. So there's a lot of information that we have already that is already giving us a story. And that's what's driving the outcomes. But we also didn't want to leapfrog too much into the future without making sure that we understand what are your needs in terms of a space? Where do you see us going in the future? And therefore, 
we've always engaged us, our colleagues, business heads, you know, trying to understand. And also the other thing is you want to make it local practical, right? Because I could design a spaceship and it never lands in Kenya or in Nigeria or Sierra Leone. But we've also taken into consideration local nuances and what really works in different markets to be able to solve for them and drive the right outcomes for them at that level. So that's why we actually cross-cut our conversations to different levels of the organizations, to different markets, to make sure that we're getting the right inputs. But you come there with the data already on hand. I mentioned that really helps to drive these conversations in the right way. It helps us ask the right level of questions in terms of, you know, the conversations we have. I think you go in also hoping to learn when you're asking questions around a workplace because you want to understand being in real estate. I don't necessarily understand what a particular operations team is managing on a day-to-day basis. If I don't talk to them to understand what is your day-to-day, I won't solve their needs in particular to be able to drive the right outcome for them to enable them to work productively in that space. So that's how we take the conversation because we do walk along with the people that we're solving for uh, from a space perspective on a more regular basis rather than you know, so I would say we co-design and we co-create quite a bit in a lot of frameworks because it has to be usable with everyone involved. I think that's going to be the way forward as well. Like in testing new things, it won't work if you just put something there and then the engagement's not going to be the same. No, for sure. Now I have a million dollar question in the true sense for you. Who owns the budget? Do you own the budget or does the business own the budget? <laughs> Who owns the budget? Million dollar question. So I am accountable for delivering the real estate budget for Africa Middle East. So I would say in a sense, yes, I do own it, but I don't hold, I'm a cost center as any other real estate company would or function would in a company or organization. And therefore there's a decision that has to be made or an engagement in terms of acceptance of the changes that we make from a budget perspective. So that's where I would say I still own it. I have to deliver it. I have to deliver the efficiencies. I have to deliver within my budget on a regular basis. So in a sense, yes, I do own it, but it's always passed on because I'm a cost center. So if you are undertaking a project, do you still go for a budget approval within the organization? So investment is central, as with any other organization, and it's money out, right? And therefore, money out would have an organizational decision as to what that amount would be and what's within the right tolerances. Necessarily, if you're delivering a strategy, you would have to go through it as with any other strategy that any organization is going through to be able to deliver the outcome. So I I don't think it's any different from any business strategy or real estate strategy that needs to be put forward from an investment perspective. The business case has to be sound. It has to make sense from a business perspective and you get the support that you need to be able to continue or go ahead with it. It's just how we tell our story sometimes. And, you know, we've gone through on Cornet in terms of, you know, the MCR asks you around business alignment, you know, understanding what the business is doing and how I align with that business for me is to be able to tell the story and the business case that makes sense to the business. And it's not really a pawn, right? Because I'm 
looking at the benefits that it's bringing back to the business by making this real estate decision, right? It could be a relocation, right? Does it make sense? Does it make commercial sense? Does it make experience sense? Does it make overall, when you look at it in the long term, what's the return on investment? And I've got to be able to drive that outcome from the business case that I'm building. And I don't think it's any different from any business case, even when you look at it from a tech perspective, purchase of new technology for an organization, or the decision to open a new business or branch in one market. It's the same type of business case that we would have to be able to put at the table from a board perspective, regardless of which way you're looking at it. I don't think they differ in any sense, and it would really need to line up with the priorities of the organization. So are we making strategic pitches from a real estate perspective that supports the overall strategy of an organization? And that's always key. You're working towards the same parameters. Yeah. And it's making sure the language is aligned with that. Because if I don't understand what my businesses are doing in the region, I can't deliver real estate solutions that support their business strategy. And therefore, I need to be able to be in touch with what that business strategy is to drive the real estate business cases. Alignment's a good prompt for me. Who do you consult with and trust for advice and information related to these, to the workplace, to the strategies, these things? I mean, I know you're engaged in Cornet and you do have an MCR and something, but yeah, is there any other that you're looking towards? I think for me, in terms of alignment, one of the things that really helps for me is, you know, having a good network of real estate professionals around me. So you're having the right level of conversations, whether it's through a networking session. Cornet has actually provided the best platform for me to be able to network and have the right level of conversations with other people to understand what's going on in different organizations, whether it's from another end user perspective or a service provider lens when you want to understand. We've also got a great partnership in, you know, in CBRE, Sebo and, and Mace Marker at the moment that allows us to have a greater reach into the real estate market, right? Because they serve different people. So insights that do come from there do support us in terms of some of the decisions that we make. A lot of times we also want to engage with internally with our businesses to understand what is their overall outlook. And, you know, that connectedness does help us make decisions that drive the right outcomes in different markets at different levels to be able to make sure that we have, you know, sound, you know, you'll never go, oops, why did we ever make that decision? You know, uh, and we've got all collective accountability around the decisions that we make around real estate. I have two final questions for you. One being, if you could magically solve any real estate problem for the future, what would it be? What does the future look like for workplace? <laughs> yeah, ah, I guess we'd have many takers for that. <laughs> I think, you know, the reality is we're going to be have to be really quick learners in real estate. We've had you know, cycles of three, four years in terms of changeover and stuff like that. With the addition of technology and the pace that technology is moving, we're going to have to be a lot more agile in terms of what we pick up. And therefore, as a result, we've got to leave ourselves room to be able to learn a lot faster from a real estate perspective. What does that mean in terms of impact on real estate decisions? I think unknown still in terms of, you know, because I could take a decision today to renew a lease, right? And tomorrow technology changes and things rapidly evolve. And I've taken 
a long decision, right? So I think one of the things that, you know, for me, that's, I, I say top of my mind is how do we get creative from a commercial lens in terms of solving for long-term lease commitments? Because organizations are going to change rapidly and the impact of cost on quick rapid change because of long-term commitments has an impact on their cost and their P&L outlays, you know, going forward. So it's how do we creatively solve in that area? And it's going to take a bit more joining up from a service provider and user perspective to be able to get to that point. But I wish I could snap my finger and get that solution tomorrow because that's what it is. That's what I see. The change is going to be so rapid and we're going to have to quickly change with it. Um, but there's certain conditions in place, even legally, that stop us from making those decisions really quickly. I think the war for talents going to branch out into a war for tenants for the landlords. So that's going to be a question they will have to ask themselves. How can we attract people to our building so that they sign the lease with us and not with somebody Correct. else? I agree. And I think, you know, the interesting thing I, th- I would say is I think we're going to see an evolution in that space as well in terms of, you know, how much space, you know, normally we would talk about a whole floor, but we might end up with a lot more smaller spaces that sort of attract the fastest growing industries at the moment, you know, which is the fintech, the, you know, new initiative space, innovation, and how do you drive those people into a space to take it up. And they're not interested in long-term five, 10-year leases, right? They will be in it for a very short time, more licensing rather than leases. So how does that impact a developer or landlord? And I think that those are the conversations that will continue to happen. Final one from my end, who else should I talk to on the podcast? And what would you like to ask them if you could? (laughs) Who else? You have very tough questions, Sabine. It would be good to get into a Collier's head or a CBRE's head or a any of the service provider lenses because they've got the flip side of what it is that I'm doing every day, right? They're getting all the demands and how does that change for them as organizations? Because these are not small organizations. They've got plans and things in place and how do they drive their service provision aligned with the rapid change in the environment as we have seen it today. And also, I think for me, what does the future look like on their end in terms of delivering? We've been talking about experience. What does it look like for them delivering the experience to the end user? I think those are good topics to be able to sort of deep dive into from podcasts to understand, you know, what's happening in that space. I'm curious too. How are they going to provide the playground for us to build the employee experience? Correct. Correct. A developer also, you know, what's happening in their space? You know, if you think about the conversations I said, or a landlord, how do you drive the right outcomes in on leases for people who probably don't have long-term decisions right now and probably won't have those decisions for another year or so? So how do you support tenants in that space? Thank you so much, Gloria. It was really insightful and I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you continue to have a good evening now because it's later where you are. <laughs> yeah. Once we have the answers, maybe we'll be back on this. I podcast. know. I wish there was magic or a crystal ball. I'm almost just sitting in front and saying, I wish I had a crystal ball to gaze. But I think the beauty about the environment right now, it's allowing us to learn a lot. 
and connect with each other, have conversations like today. So thank you so much, Sabine. It's been really great to chat with you. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there is more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We have just released a study on corporate real estate in the US that you can download there. Or tune into our next episode of The Workplace Leader. We'll be right back.